Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is a romantic wartime tale about Barbara Shuttleworth and Felix Sturber, who amidst the ruins of a bombed-out London found comfort in each other's arms. And yet, something led these two lovers to end their lives in a truly bizarre death pact. Well, sort of. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatisation of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 86, The Lover's Death Pact. Today, I'm standing on Queensway in Bayswater, W2. One street south of the drive-run jewellery heist for the Charlotte Street robbery. Three streets north of the Blackout Ripper's final victim, Doris June. A short walk north of the site of the Hyde Park bombing. And a little dawdle from the little-known truth of the memorial to the murdered policeman, Jack Avery. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Queensway is a bit of a dog's dinner. Being uncomfortably wedged between the piss-poor gloom of Paddington and the pretentious arseholery of Notting Hill, this side of Bayswater is a mess. But as a mix of wealth and culture, what you can buy for 99p at Akmal's Discount Cash and Carry is also flogged off for five times the price at Susie's Splendiferous Yummy Mummy Parlour, where the thickest shit wives of wealthy stockbrokers are duped into buying utter crap like vegan bikes, veggie wigs, meat-free meat, leopard print pants for the lactose intolerant, ethically sourced air for the gluten-free, and everyone's favourite con, beaded prayer mats, rebranded as authentic ethnic yoga mats, as used by Madonna when she made some mumbo-jumbo religious twaddle fashionable 
for six whole seconds. On the corner of Porchester Road, a 210A Queensway is Ralph Court. An impressive eight-storey red and brown bricked mansion covering half a square block. But with no access except by locked doors and a glaring concierge, through the black wrought iron gates, there to keep the riffraff out, it looks like a nice place to live. And although in its central courtyard, some residents sit and lose themselves in a tawdry tale, they're unaware that just yards away was spun a truly strange tale of love, death and suicide. As it was here, on Friday the 30th of July 1948, the two lovers entered a strange suicide pact where both of them would die, but only one of them knew why. But Barbara wasn't looking for love. She was looking for the one. In autumn 1922, Barbara Sylvia Shuttleworth was born in the quaint market town of Knaresborough, four miles east of Harrogate, and nestled amidst the breathtaking scenery of the Yorkshire Dales. Her upbringing was idyllic, as happily playing with her pals amidst the vivid hues of the moorland moss, the lush green valleys and the crystal clear lakes. Far from the choking smog of the city, her childhood was untroubled. As the only child of John, a retired captain and affluent stockbroker, and Gwendolyn, the granddaughter of Sir Roland Barron, a pioneer in the manufacture of ready-to-wear clothing. Although the Shuttleworths were well off, they weren't the idle rich, but came from a heritage of the industrious working classes who prospered. And whilst many good persons struggled to survive in the austere shadow of the First World War, John and Gwendolyn Shuttleworth ensured that their daughter had it all. She had health, wealth and happiness. Privately educated at the same finishing school as her mother, tutored in etiquette, deportment and social grace, Barbara was raised to be a lady who was polite, moral and charming. An immaculately dressed woman with brown permed hair, an illuminating smile and a towering elegant stance. But a finishing school is not a university. And although she was also taught history and English, living in an era where a woman's role was to look pretty and stay quiet, their misguided belief was that if a lady spoke proper, stood upright and had a smattering of brains to make small talk with a potential suitor, she would find herself a good man and she would live a good and full life as his wife. It was an old-fashioned notion that led Barbara's parents to wed and subsequently divorce. By the outbreak of World War II, as an avid reader of history and poetry, 17-year-old Barbara had found her true passion in the London libraries. By the middle of the war, like most people, the barrage of bombs had become just an annoyance to this independent woman who sought a career, and maybe if she had time, a man. 
by 1946. Still single, but sifting a slew of suitable suitors, who regardless of their age, title or wealth, had to be someone that she actually loved. When the bombed bits of the House of Commons were rebuilt, the British government established a very modern research department in the Palace of Westminster, and hired Barbara as its assistant librarian. Barbara Shuttleworth was a well-balanced woman with a good career, a busy social life, a happy home life, and raised to be polite, moral and decent. She had her pick of the men who fell at her feet. One possible suitor was Lieutenant Colonel Felix Sturber, and he would love Barbara to death. Although a military man, Felix was a man of his emotions. Felix Jan Sturber was born in 1897. His early life, just like Barbara's, was idyllic. Home was a beautiful little farm at the foothills of the Tatra Mountains in the far south of Poland. So peaceful and tranquil was this tiny village that even before a rickety funicular railway turned Zakopane into a popular ski resort. With its crisp fresh air, icy cold lakes and snow-capped peaks, it was famed as a health spa. As the youngest boy to three older sisters, and the only son to a doting housewife mother who spoiled him rotten, and a stern overbearing father who scared him. Like most children, Felix was the product of both parents. He was sensitive and thoughtful like his mama, but intense and precise like his papa. So as a physically tough, but emotionally fragile little boy, burdened by a big heart and an overactive brain, he had a desire to be loved and a need to control. On the 30th of November 1929, 31-year-old Felix married a pretty local girl called Maria. Believing she was better than he actually deserved, to keep his wife happy, he built her a stunning timber cabin called Villa Silanka in the Tatra Mountains. As a meticulous man, he crafted a solid career as a pilot in the Polish Air Force, ensuring that she was never without. Desperate to be a dad, on the 19th of July 1931, they gave birth to a little boy called Andrea, a date he immortalized on a gold medallion which he always wore around his neck. And although he was cursed by a jealous streak and paranoid that his modest and faithful wife would leave him, he signified his undying love for his beloved Maria by inscribing her name and wedding date inside his gold ring and secreting a photo and a lock of her hair in a gold locket. On the 30th of September 1938, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain held aloft a sworn statement from German Chancellor Adolf Hitler, in which he assured the people of Europe that there would be peace in her time. But it was all a lie. 
On the 1st of September 1939, Germany invaded West Poland. By week two, war was declared. By week three, the Soviets had invaded East Poland. And by week four, with 70% of all Polish aircraft either destroyed or confiscated, and with the country left defenseless, Poland had fallen, and its people were under both Nazi and Soviet rule. With the Polish air force obliterated, 43-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Felix Sturber and the remaining pilots were forced to flee. By October 1939, he was in Romania. By December, he was in France. And knowing that his wife and child would be safe in their remote mountain retreat, like most people, believing that this whole hullabaloo would blow over by the end of the year, he wasn't unduly worried. But as the Germans drove west, the Allies were evacuated from Dunkirk and the Nazis paraded through the streets of Paris. With the enemy perched just 100 miles from the coast, on the 30th of June 1940, Felix fled to England. He hadn't seen his family in a year. Every day away was torture. Every mile apart was like a stab in the heart. And although, as a prolific letter writer, the few letters which got through from his loving wife reassured her paranoid husband that they were alive, well, and that she would remain forever faithful. As a tough military man who struggled to rein in his emotions, the only time he could be near his family was when he held his golden locket, medallion and wedding band. He was alone, lonely and broken. Two years later, as the war raged on, Felix was still stuck in England. And then he met Barbara. As an Air Force veteran, Lieutenant Colonel Sturber was snapped up by the British to train a new fleet of fighter pilots based out of Regent's Park. With only wooden mock-ups for dry runs, the training was mostly theory. But with the average rookie pilot's lifespan being just 16 minutes, time was short, turnover was high, and as a rough, no-nonsense officer, Felix demanded perfection. But the war effort was just a distraction from the pain of missing his family. And when he was alone, he would become depressed. For Felix, as he shuffled through London's West End, all he saw was dirt, dust and death. After four years without his family, food tasted bland, time had no meaning, and he drank to forget. Every day it rained. And then, the clouds parted, the sky turned blue, and the sunlight shone. On the 14th of June 1943, while supping a cup of tea at the Lion's Corner House Tea Room in Marble Arch, Felix met 21-year-old Barbara Shuttleworth. She was bright, charming, and beautiful. A breath of fresh air with a beaming smile who effortlessly breezed through the drab grey ruins of the bombed-out city. And as he became dizzy from the joyous sound of her songs and the sweet scent of her perfume, in a world so full of pain, chaos and horror, 
Suddenly, the dead weight in his heart melted away. That night, in his diary, Felix wrote Metbasia, the Polish word for Barbara. For Felix, she was a lovely girl who eased his pain, made him smile, and shared his love of poetry. For Barbara, although she was a singleton with many suitors, as he was a decorated war hero, a sensitive gentleman, and a generous friend, he was a real catch for some lucky lady, and she was interested. Briefly, as happens during wartime, a little bit of innocent flirtation blossomed into a romantic dalliance. But as she was half his age, and he was a happily married man, it was never meant to be. So knowing that once these hostilities were over, and that he would return home to his wife and child, they would simply remain as just good friends. Today is victory in Europe day. Long live the cause of freedom. God save the king. On the 2nd of September 1945, with Hitler dead and the Nazis defeated, as a 100,000 strong crowd of excitable people erupted in jubilant celebration across Trafalgar Square, just like many others, Barbara and Felix kissed and cheered, as after six long years of fear and separation, the war was finally over. But as the street parties died down, for many allies, a new war had only just begun. With Germany split, and a supposedly peaceful Europe being sliced up between the democratic West and the communist East, Poland was placed under Soviet control. Having fought against a Nazi dictatorship and died to defend this country, the Polish forces rightfully felt cheated as they were forced to exchange one brutal regime for another. Like many Polish troops, for now, Felix was stuck. He was a soldier with no war to fight, a pilot with no plane to fly, a father with no child to raise, and a husband with no wife to love. He had nothing. For Barbara, the end of the war meant business as usual. With her lovely floral townhouse untouched by the Blitz, she still lived with her mother at 35 Bark Place in Bayswater and often saw her father in Knightsbridge. With the government busy, she had been promoted to senior assistant librarian in the Palace of Westminster. And having waded through a slew of potential suitors, her love life had blossomed, having got herself a boyfriend. He was charming, he was kind, and he was sweet. But he wasn't Felix. In his eyes, Barbara was his lover. In her eyes, Felix was her friend. And with their brief flirtation, having come to an end five years ago, as much as Barbara had tried to distance herself from Felix, as a lady who was raised to be moral, charming and polite, it was hard for her to sever all of the ties with a sweet man who was so broken. She had to end it. But how? At home, she'd be sent his letters. At work, she'd get his gifts. 
Outside her window, she'd see his face. And every night, sometimes twice, she'd hear his phone calls. He was a married man who was double her age, and she didn't love him. So as much as it hurt her, Barbara broke off all contact with Felix, hoping that silence would cause him to forget all about her. Only it didn't. In late 1947, paranoid that his wife was being unfaithful, and ironically, seeing her as his only obstacle to being with his one true love, Felix applied for divorce, informed Barbara by letter, but got no reply. In Christmas 1947, he made two gold medallions, inscribed with FS for Felix Sturber, BS for Barbara Shuttleworth, and on the back, he wrote London. His he hung around his neck, but hers was never found. And as eight months passed in silence, being sat in his lonely little bedsit on the seventh floor of Ralph Court, he filled his diary with nothing about his life, just his many failed attempts to contact Barbara. Sunday the 18th of July, 1948. The diary read, Fond Bathsia. Monday the 19th. Was in Bathsia's hall. Was wonderful. Tuesday the 20th. Fond Bathsia. And yes, she had made contact and let him in, as she had something important she needed to say. She just didn't know how to say it without breaking his heart. Wednesday the 21st, phone Bassia. Thursday the 22nd, Bassia didn't turn up, mother ill. Friday the 23rd, Bassia didn't phone. Saturday the 24th, Bassia didn't phone. Sunday the 25th, Bassia didn't phone. Monday the 26th, Bassia didn't phone at 10pm. I was under her window. And Tuesday the 27th, no news from Bassia. Is it the end with us? I phoned and asked her if she is alive. I have to speak with her. That day, she had to speak to him before he saw what her mother had prematurely placed in The Guardian, The Times and The Yorkshire Post newspapers. It read, The engagement is announced between Michael Thomas Lupton the only son of Mrs. D.W. Lupton of Chester Row in Belgravia, and Barbara, the only daughter of John and Gwendolyn Shuttleworth. Felix didn't see it, but still she needed to tell him this to his face. As being raised proper, she knew it was the decent thing to do. Wednesday the 28th. Von Bassia. I think we will meet. And although her call was only brief, it buoyed his spirits, as on Thursday the 29th, he wrote, Bassia promises, said she would come tomorrow at 1pm. But at that very point, Barbara had other things on her mind. That evening, over a romantic candlelit dinner in a lovely little bistro in Bayswater, a besotted Barbara clinked champagne flutes with her fiancé Thomas. It was a glimpse at their happy life ahead. 
and to everyone who saw them, they were very much in love. After a two-year courtship, they were engaged, soon to be married, and with the purchase of a little flat in Highgate almost complete, Thomas slid his lover the key to their first home together. And as she left, in Thomas's own words, he said that she was absolutely ecstatic. But Felix had made his decision. His last diary entry on Friday the 30th of July 1948 simply read, Basia will come at 1pm. God knows how it will be. Perhaps we will perish. The end of the chapter for you and me. For Miss Barbara Shuttleworth, the soon-to-be Mrs. Barbara Lupton, Friday the 30th of July 1948 was a day like no other. It started pretty ordinary. At 7am she awoke, washed, dressed and ate an apple. At 8am, elegantly dressed in a blue and white cotton dress, a black hat and black shoes, she left home with a spring in a step, hopped on the Bayswater tube to Westminster and by Big Ben, sashayed through the stiff suits on Parliament Street and breezed into number one, Derby Gate. As a librarian at the House of Commons, Barbara was like a ray of light in a grey room of gloom. But even more than usual, her colleague, Pauline Bebbington, said that she seemed joyous, but also nervous. Today was a big day. At 4.30pm, with a key a tape measure, and her mother Gwendolyn, she would head to 29 Highgate West Hill in Hampstead and decide on the furniture and fittings of her new home. But first, she needed to set the record straight. At exactly 12.45pm, with only a one-hour break, a 30-minute journey to make, and no time to dither, needing to be back at work by 1pm at the latest, she packed up, dashed out, apologised to Pauline for missing their lunch date and caught a taxi to Queensway. Arriving at Ralph Court, just shy of 1.15pm, she exchanged a pound to pay the taxi with Charles Haddon the porter, took the lift up to the seventh floor and with the red-bricked mansion block being U-shaped around the floral courtyard, at the far end of the corridor, she rang the doorbell to flat 147. As a three-bedroom flat, owned by landlady Margaret Rydell, who was out, she was greeted by lodger Mira Milosevic, who was just leaving. And as Felix, who had taken a sleeping pill the night before, still wasn't awake, Barbara was let in, left alone, and there are no witnesses to what happened next. At 1.45pm, the cleaner, Beatrice Benham, arrived. She heard no sounds, she saw no people, and assuming that the flat was empty, she started cleaning the kitchen. Ten minutes later, the courtyard filled with screams. The flat buzzed with panicked people. The porter tried to bash down the bedroom door. 
and with the police called at 2.03pm. They arrived by 2.07, but it was too late. Felix's bedroom was a small bed sitting room with a single bed, a desk, an armchair, a wireless radio and a small balcony window overlooking the courtyard. Being a meticulous military man, it was smart, neat and sparse. But with every item listed on a very precise inventory, as if he was planning to leave. On a rail hung his uniform, all pressed and starched. On his desk were his medals, his family photos, a wedding ring, a gold locket and two gold medallions. On his bedside table was a glass of water, a pot of sleeping pills, his diary, a book of Polish poetry, an unopened letter to Barbara, a sealed letter to his son, the inventory of all his worldly possessions, and his last will and testament. On the floor was a gun. Felix was missing, and lying on the bed was Barbara. According to the police investigation, this is what happened. Felix had made a decision. As he and Barbara were lovers, either they would live together, die together, or if he couldn't have her, then no one could. But having had a fitful night's sleep and taken a sleeping pill, he had overslept. So although he dreamed of looking resplendent on his last day alive, dressed in his crisp uniform, shiny boots and gleaming array of medals, as Barbara knocked on his bedroom door, he was dozy, tired and wearing just his pyjama bottoms. At 1.55pm, Barbara was sitting on the bed, Felix was standing by the door and from his desk he pulled a revolver. There were no screams, just three quick shots, then a fourth and a fifth. With the gun muzzle flushed to her hairline, firing at point-blank range, which flashed black powder burns between her left ear and eye, the first shot ripped through her left temple, eviscerated her left and right temporal lobe and shattered the right temple, causing extensive hemorrhaging to her brain. Almost immediately, Felix fired a second shot. With Barbara still sitting upright but slumping forwards, a bullet smashed her third rib, pierced her left lung and the seventh rib of her back, leaving a deep red stain on her blue and white dress just above her heart. With her left lung having collapsed, her chest cavity filled and she began to drown in her own blood. The third shot came within a second of the last. But this wasn't for her, this was for him. With his suicide pact almost complete, he placed the gun into his gaping mouth, the barrel flat against his palate, and with the muzzle pointing towards his brain. Felix fired. The right of his skull erupted in a thick red mist, and with a heavy thud, he slumped to the floor but he wasn't dead. Somehow he had survived. Picking up the gun, 
into his mouth. He fired it again. But still he didn't die. Why? He didn't know. He had felt the hot fiery flash in his mouth. He could taste the acrid cordite on his tongue. And up his wall, down his heaving chest, onto his trembling hands and soaking his pyjama bottoms was his blood. But still he was breathing and still he was alive. He fired a fifth shot, this time into his heart. Only he missed and hit his left arm. With the gun being a six-shooter, he knew he would only have one shot left. One chance to end it all. So desperate to die and to be with Barbara, he put the muzzle of the gun flush to his temple and fired. Only it was empty. There was no sixth bullet and he had only one option left. At 1.55pm, having snuck up to the roof for a cheeky cigarette, Charles Haddon, the porter, heard several shots in quick succession. I then saw Mr. Sturber at his bedroom window, stood on the sill, half naked and looking down. He hesitated for a second, sank down onto his haunches like he was crouched, and then he rolled off. Felix plunged seven floors roughly 70 feet, and landed hard. His upper body smashed onto a brick wall, and his lower body hit the concrete slabs one foot below. But miraculously, again, he didn't die. At least not there, and not yet. The ambulance arrived at 2.08pm. Felix had sustained 12 broken ribs, a fractured pelvis, a broken left hip, foot and femur, both lungs collapsed, both kidneys and spleen ruptured, and three bullet wounds to the arm, mouth and head. He was admitted to Paddington Hospital, but died at 2.42pm. Three minutes later, having detected a very faint pulse, Barbara was admitted to Paddington Hospital. She was given blood, plasma, and began to show signs of recovery. But by the time her fiancé, Thomas, had arrived, it was too late. At 8.40pm, Barbara Shuttleworth died, with her mother at her side. Next to his bed, Felix had left his last will and testament. In it, he left almost everything to his ex-wife Maria. His gold ring, his watch, his locket, his medallion, his bank balance, totaling almost £67,000, which was to be used for the education of their son, and the deeds to their home in Zacopane, which he had legally signed over to Maria, ironically, on the day that Barbara had got engaged. In a letter to his son Andrea, he wrote... My son, please excuse me for the things which have happened, but my life is broken. I don't blame anybody, and I myself am not to be blamed. Be a good man and take me as an example until my 50th year of age. Afterwards, I was a weak man, 
She is a bad woman, Barbara. She influenced me to my divorce, proceedings of which, although happy, I did not start. She is very bad, but I love her. Therefore, I take her with me. Pray for my poor soul. Your father, F. Sturber. An inquest was held at Westminster's Coroner's Court on the 6th of August, 1948. And with the jury not even needing to retire to consider their verdict, it was declared that Felix Sturber had murdered Barbara Shuttleworth and then committed suicide whilst the balance of his mind was disturbed. Barbara Shuttleworth was 26 years old. She was a lovely girl, with a good job, a happy family and a bright future. Whose radiant smile illuminated rooms, whose charm made people truly love her, and whose warmth and passion for others led a really beautiful person to lose her life far too early. She was due to marry Thomas Lupton a few days later, but instead she was buried. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Don't forget, Extra Mile is next, so pop your tea on the hob, a cake in your gob, as it's time to chow down and witter about nonsense. Before that, a thank you to my new Patreon supporter, who this week is Mary McRae. I thank you. As well as a thank you to all Patreon supporters, whether old or new, previous or impending, as well as everyone who leaves reviews, comments, and shares this podcast with their friends. To everyone, I thank you. Murder Mile was researched, written, and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
Oh, dear Lord. Oh. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Extra Mile. Sorry, that was really difficult. I was uh, oh, trying to do Felix Sturber's voice for that end bit. And it keeps going into bloody Welsh all the time. It keeps going. Uh, I can't even do Welsh now. Now my brain can't. Oh, I can't concentrate now. I can't work it out. My brain kept going. Uh, Hello. Like that. It kept going all Swansea and I kept shouting at myself stop being bloody Welsh but it wouldn't stop so uh, I think I'm going to try we've had think about it we've had four weeks of eastern and southern European accents and it's killing me last week I well last three episodes I had three accents I had to do this one another one I think I'm just going to do some get some good old cockney accents in there anyone who's murdered who doesn't happen to be from the united kingdom can piss off i'm only gonna do or from this point onwards i'm just gonna say right they've all got cockney accents (laughs) it's so difficult to do it really hurt my throat my voice is killing anyway extra mile time here we are extra mile time uh uh, this is the extra bit, the bollocksy bit afterwards, where which takes no effort. I just sit here and waffle for about 45 minutes and everyone goes, oh, I love it because you make a cup of tea and you have a cake and you talk shit. The irony is, the irony is, this is a good point, the irony is, if, the, if Murder Mile at the start wasn't as contained as it was, you can hear Koo outside. He's been at that all bloody morning. Uh, if for, the first part of Murder Mile isn't, isn't as scripted and contained as and tight as it was, this bit wouldn't work because no one would come to this. If I just did these every week, no one would come to it. It'd be the the lowest ranking podcast out there. Because think about it, there's loads of this kind of shit out there where someone thinks that they're what they have to say is important, and it's not. It's just shit. It's bollocks. But it works because I think someone said it on a tour to me recently. They said, "Oh, I love Extra Mile." And I was like, "Oh." god not another one because it's quite de- i'll be honest it's a little bit depressing when you work hard on the first bit and everyone loves the bit which takes no fucking effort but actually she made a good point she said the reason why it works is that the first bit is like kind of like a nice meal it's uh it's your starter in your main course and it's a really nice meal and you're really enjoying the meal but after you've had the meal you want to have a nice dessert you want to have an ice cream you want to have a palate cleanser and that's what it is it's the first part so contained the second part is free and different and that's why it works and then i was like oh you've, oh it all makes sense now that makes sense so uh yeah uh so this is extra mile the palate cleanser the uh the the glass of water at the end of the meal or you know not it's not a uh, a dessert wine because as we all know dessert wines are expensive but they taste horrible as well Ugh. Uh, I would say it's a nice uh, it's a nice nice cup of tea or um, a nice cold beer or an, or like an ice an icy smoothie or something like that or just a nice beer would be nice oh anyway right I need to make a cup of tea and I'm gonna open some windows and doors because I need some fresh air because it's hot well it's not hot but ugh. Oh look, not just a coot, a moorhen. The little moorhen are outside. But the ones the ones around here are a little bit nervous, a little bit nervy. Uh, and a bit needy as well. So I just make myself a nice tea, an ass cup of tea. Yeah, they're having a fight. The coot is having a shout and the moorhen. They don't seem to they don't seem to fight, they just seem to shout at each other and go. Eah! And they're a bit stupid as well. Because they, uh, 
Like I'll throw them some bread. You can't you can't give a bread to coots. I know people say yeah, you can't give bread to wildlife, but um, actually the RSP good to do that. Uh, uh, oh, my laptop just switched off. I think. Hang on. No, you're still running. The RSPB did say uh, with swans as well. They say it it's it, it's okay for them. They can have that, and they actually use it as part of their their kind of winter diet as well. So, uh, but I give I give very very soft bread to them. Uh, but if you throw out some bread to the coots, the coots instead of going right, there's lots of bread here. So I'll have the big one. The little ones can kind of bug bugger off. What they'll do is they go. Ugh, no, I'll spend ten minutes chasing people away from all the bread. And by the time they come back, the bread's gone because the seagulls have gone. They're really stupid. Really stupid. Right. Oh, I forgot to put my tea bag in. I was so busy talking about tea bags and uh, so busy talking about coots. Tea bag, milk and sugar. See, if you're new to Extra Mile, it's really, see, it is waffle, isn't it? It is an absolute waffle. Absolute twaddle. But there we go. Uh, the cake of the day today. Oh, yes. Although, as you all know, there's not many cake. I was in. Oh, we'll get to that shortly. Uh, I'm having a vanilla cream crown. Oh, it's like a soft pastry with uh, a vanilla cream in the centre with uh, almonds on top and some icing. Oh, yeah, that's going to go down a treat. Right. Before we start and get into waffling, let's do some questions before the kettle boils. Right. Ten questions coming up. They start easy. They get harder. So. You get the answers at the end, end of Extra Mile. So here we go. Question one. What was Barbara's middle name? <laughs> Question two. What was Felix's middle name? <laughs> Question three. What was the nearest tube station to Barbara's home? And also, actually, Felix's home as well. Question four. What was Barbara wearing that day? Question five. What floor did Felix jump from? I've got some pictures online. So if you're a Patreon supporter, there'll be uh, some extra pictures on there. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll post them on my blog as well. So you can have a look and see what the location looks like. Question six. What three countries did Felix... Uh, escape through having fled from poland so when he left poland where did he uh, what three countries did he escape to he went through three question seven where did felix and barbara first meet mm, were you listening mm. question eight rookie pilots during world war Two are said to have only had a lifespan of how long <clears throat> Question nine. Barbara's great grandfather was what? <clears throat> I'll give you some more information on that very shortly. And question ten. Now this wasn't mentioned in the episode, but which other airman who may or may not have been trained by Felix as an airman was stationed in Regent's Park and often ate at the Lions Corner House tea room in Marble Arch? Mm. if you've listened to all the other series you will know that answer Ooh, right uh kettle's still brewing so uh hope you're all well i know that there's all the coronavirus bullshit going on at the moment uh so um if like me you're self-employed uh i hope all is going well 
uh, all of my things are so uh, the motorbike walk to I have to start cancelling all those people aren't booking in rightly so I'm having to start giving refunds gonna have to shut down for a couple of weeks that's that oh, the live tour the live show is probably going to be binned as well although the the people who, who are the promoters haven't actually told me anything yet so I'd actually know whether we're doing it or not uh, so that's not happening uh, the new live uh, the new tour that I'd mentioned last week that's been pulled so I'll, I'll i'll do that over summer sometime but yeah it doesn't make sense to do it right now everything's pretty much shut down so for yeah for all the self-employed people out there um yeah good luck hunker down because obviously you know if you're if you're lucky enough to be in a a full job where your employer's going oh it's fine you know you'll self-isolate for a couple of weeks and i'll pay you full pay or half pay for those of you who earn basically hand to mouth Jesus so uh luckily I've still got the podcast to do that will hopefully hopefully that will uh just gonna let it let it brew for a bit hopefully that will uh get some money coming in and hopefully there'll be some uh sponsorship but uh I I deliberately haven't been putting money away, away into a secret account I've let it sit there so I've got enough money to last I think but yeah, oh god, it's all it's all up in the air, isn't it? I was in I was in the big Tesco's yesterday having a having a little uh, mooch around. Thought I'd pick up some stuff because it was Sunday. I'd done a nice big. I'd done some. I'd written the re- final part of this and done a, a rewrite on it. And then I I, I was like right because I hadn't got a tour yesterday because uh, I had to cancel that one. I was like right, I'm going to do a, a long bike ride and film some of the locations. So um, fil- I, I filmed this location. Over in Queensway, but then I, I had to go down to Richmond to film uh, the locations for episode eighty-seven, which is coming up. There's another location in Shepherd's Bush, so I did like a th- oh, I did uh, a nice. If you go on my YouTube channel, I did another Reg Christie one that I went past, so I put that one on there. But that was like a thirty, thirty-five minute bike ride. I was absolutely knackered by the time I got back. But then I was heading back. I went into Tesco's and thought I'll pick up some nice stuff. Uh, I'll pick up like some burgers or stuff because I like to treat myself on a Sunday. Tesco's, Jesus, it was like Russia in the 1980s. There was nothing there. Massive Tesco's, and everyone had panicked. Everyone was like, oh, oh, panic. Oh, oh, I need to buy waffles. I need to buy. And it's like, come on, guys. Come on, guys. You don't need to panic. The only reason you're panicking is because everyone else is panicking, panicking, and you think you have to panic as well. Uh, but don't. Let's not forget, people, that if, if, if you're. If you're regularly, if you're fit and healthy, and you're kind of an of an average age, you're going to be, you're pretty much going to be all right. It's it's the older generation who and the younger generation. Now, the younger generation are lucky, like you have babies and kids; they've got their parents to look after them. But let's not forget, older generation, many are probably living by themselves. They don't have cars. They probably don't have cars. They can't go out to all these supermarkets and fill up with like a hundred toilet rolls and all of the rice that they need and all the coffee. They'll have a little shopping basket, so. They're basically going out every day and they could, there's nothing there that they can buy because uh, people have gone out and bought loads and uh, flogging it off on eBay. So, uh, you know, chill out, everyone. Chill out. We're all going to get through this. It's all going to be fine. It's all going to be fine, isn't it? It's just it's just the thing that everyone feels that they have to panic. They see other people panic and they have to panic as well. There's really no need. It's just if everyone just chill, chill the F out. We're all going to be fine. <sighs> right. 
everyone's self-isolating but what i realized is i self-isolate all the time as a podcaster i spend probably 12 hours a day sitting here in the boat by myself writing or recording or editing not seeing anyone not talking to anyone so you know self-isolating for me is basically just a regular day i think the only difference that's going to be is either uh, a regular amount of cake or less cake that's really going to be it but i've got tea to last well i always i always have enough tea to last about a year anyway i always have enough rice to last a year i always have enough toilet paper to last a year it's like do you know i'm one of these i've got enough petrol i've got enough yeah i've got enough of everything i just i store stuff so always have done because i don't like i don't like knowing that i might run out so i always store a lot of stuff but yeah we're all gonna be fine uh as i say i think i think more uh, as i say uh i think it, who was it the independent said this they said that more people will probably end up bankrupt than will die of coronavirus and i think i was like yeah you're absolutely right because everyone's panicking panic but panic buying but also panic not buying and therefore a lot of businesses are shutting and going under so actually it's not it's not the fact that you will die from the virus is the fact that your, you know, your finances will go a bit kasblooey. But that's it. Anyway, fuck that. It's all bollocks. Right. <laughs> let's <clears throat> let's do some extra stuff. There's some stuff in this episode that I probably didn't get to uh, put all the way in. So let's do it. Um, the letter uh, that Felix left to his son. I'll read it. I won't do the voice because I really struggle with that. But I, I edited it down for the episode. But this is what it says. It said it, uh, it was in Polish, but this is it translated. Uh, it says, Dear Andrew, but that's the uh, English translation of Andrea. Dear Andrew, please excuse me for the things which happened, but my life is broken. Therefore, I decided to settle things in the most simple manner. It happened. I don't blame any anybody and I myself am not to be blamed bit modest there uh it is the unhappy sunk consequences of circumstances be a good man and take me as an example until my 50th year of age afterwards i was a weak man and broken through hard fate i bless mother grandmother grandfather and my sisters they should forgive my act she is a bad woman barbara she influenced me to my divorce proceedings of which happily though i did not start that is what it seems to me now. My life is broken. She is very bad, but I love her. Therefore, I take her with me. Pray for my poor for, poor soul, your father, F. Sturber. There you go. Lovely. Now, I, do, I didn't put this in the episode because I couldn't work out a place to put it. But there was a letter on his bedside table addressed to Barbara, which was unopened. Now, it was undated as well, but we know that he wrote it the night before the murder because it gives reference. He was... He was expecting a call from her. She didn't call. He went to her place, as always, and stood underneath her window at 35 Bark Place. And he said that she made some kind of gesture that he didn't like. Uh, something to do with her neck, he said. Um, I don't think... Oh, I might have edited it. I don't think I have the, the full version. But it says, What gestures did you show yesterday to me at one at 10.30pm from your window? Uh in the original version, he said, neck out. Uh, it was kind of like neck out, head forwards, but it, it didn't really explain it well. Frank, answer please. Why didn't ring in, this is his words, why didn't ring in and what and what me why to ring? Yeah. Uh, do you love me still or, or is all over now? Uh, 
you are in love with me or you are in love with somebody else do you reckon that you have broken my my love i lost nearly six years for you i think i did this put this in the episode i sent uh, for divorce in poland it's your bad deed do you believe in god if so say your prayers we will die together you have broken my life i will break yours and mine too f sturber he loves signing off f sturber uh yeah i put some of that in the in the episode but i didn't put the early bit about the gestures because that kind of really threw me off uh oh dear i got burpees um one of the things i didn't put in was that it was a lot of a lot of people going on in and around the scene when the murder happened uh mrs beatrice bentham she was the cleaner she'd been there for about two she'd been cleaning the the flat for about two years not not it had taken her two years to clean it she was a cleaner in the flat for two years otherwise she was a shit cleaner she'd been there about about 25 30 minutes she saw no one else in the flat she went through she was cleaning the kitchen there was a lady with her called mrs beavis who was helping her out i didn't put her in the episode because she doesn't need to be there doesn't serve a purpose um about 1 one fifty-five p.m she said she heard three shots then a, then a pause, a thud, and then another shot. But in a later statement, she said she heard two extra shots. Uh, she came to uh, Felix's room, couldn't get in because the door was locked. Um, uh, she called out. Mr. Porter, uh, Charles Haddon, uh, was coming down the steps. He was on the roof, don't forget. He was having a bit of a cheeky cigarette and talking to the electricians who were on the roof. He said, he shouted, I can't come in. There's a man gone off the roof. Uh, Beatrice and Mrs. Beavis and the porter went down to the ground. They'd been there for about 10 minutes. Uh, da, 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 da. Hang on. Uh, so Charles Haddon, yeah, he was on the roof talking to the electricians who were fixing a wireless. And I mentioned this already. He heard one, he heard a shot from the far end of Ralph Court, saw Mr. Sturber jump from the window, was just wearing his pajama trousers jumped off uh he kind of like stood on the balcony and then kind of leaned forwards and rolled off um and they went down because they didn't realize anything had happened in the room because obviously the room was uh uh the room the bedroom was locked uh by that point uh but they they realized they couldn't get in they needed to so uh mr uh, alfred baldwin who was an electrician he was working on the roof just above fixing uh the the antenna for the wireless radio he heard the shots in there no one could get into felix's bedroom so he climbed down from the roof into the window which was open that was the window that felix had jumped out of he climbed through the bedroom window opened the door so the police could get in and it was him who discovered that um her barber was lying on the bed and she had been shot multiple times. Uh, it was a Yale lock. So uh, it's one of those ones where it closes behind itself. Uh, so it hadn't been locked. It had, you know, it would have looked sinister for her if she would, uh, she would have said, oh, why are you locking the door? But she hadn't. He, they'd just closed the door behind them. Yeah, it was a narrow ledge. Uh, I've, I, I can't show you the exact location of where it was because uh, the courtyard is kind of sealed off it's a private courtyard but what i've done online is i've posted some pictures of you can see the window itself uh, and i've posted a another window which is identical to it so you can see what the window ledge looked like as well so that's all there ah what else did we get oh yeah when they got there so they saw that barbara still she was she was lying on the bed but she still had a faint pulse so they they tried their best to revive her but 
there was uh, nothing left of her, unfortunately. Uh, she arrived at uh, 2.45pm at Paddington Hospital, which is not too far away. Paddington Hospital is where Sir Bernard Spilsbury, the Home Office pathologist, trained. Um, that's, uh, Paddington Hospital is also known as St Mary's. Uh, she died at 8.40. Uh, excessive bleeding, hemorrhaging, uh, bleeding from the right ear. They gave her plasma and blood, but she was very weak. She, After about two or three hours, she started to recover, but then she relapsed and died. Uh, a death was caused by laceration to the brain by a bullet wound. If she would have survived, I mean, who knows how much of her would, would survive with her uh, injuries to her brain. Uh, uh, Felix was Felix was admitted at two twenty seven. So just uh, he was at yes. Uh, hang on, uh, yes, two twenty seven. Um, hit a bullet, two bullet wounds to the inside of his mouth, and inside his mouth they te- they found two flattened. Sorry, inside uh, the underside of the skin to his right scalp, they found two flattened bullets. So basically, the, uh, the bullets had gone into his. He'd put the gun in his mouth. He'd fired the shots. Uh, they'd gone through his palate, they'd gone through part of his head but not his brain, but they weren't strong enough to go through the skull itself, so they actually embedded on the inside of his scalp. Uh, so there was, there was obviously, uh, 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 it was fractured there and there was blood up the walls, but you know uh, they, they hadn't gone through, the, but the energy had. Uh, he got an injury to the uh, top of his left arm, left arm where remember he tried to shoot himself in the heart but he missed uh there was an entrance and exit wound there um and obviously he had multiple injuries so uh he actually died of uh, uh it was mostly of blood blood loss and shock just because of all these multi i mean he i mean he'd broken his pelvis i mean that's quite a, that's a big injury in its own right and you can die of multiple blood loss from that uh what else we got uh, post-mortem yeah i kind of covered all that in there uh basically uh, barbara basically drowned in her own blood because she uh, her, her body cavity was filling up with blood there was about three pints of blood in her chest which is which is a lot uh what else we got i think that's it i think that's i, I pretty much covered everything on this episode i put in as much as i can it, it feels like a long episode it'll probably be about 35 minutes long <sighs> oh dear oh, oh my tea I was waffling and I forgot about my tea. Parched. So parched. Oh, a cup of tea. Oh, it's good. Oh, thank you to the makers of tea. Oh, best invention in the world. As well as the makers of cake. Cake and tea. What more can you ask for? Right. Oh, how long was that? Right, I'm gonna do some. Um, I'm gonna do the. I'll do the answers to the questions. God, really knackered. <sighs> Trying to do Felix's voice really killed me. Uh, right, let's do. Let's have a a, sli- a swig of tea. <sniffs> Yummy. Mm, look at that vanilla crown. It looks lovely. Um, right, ten questions. Here's the answers to them. Question number one: What was Barbara's middle name? Her middle name was Sylvia. Question number two. What was Felix's middle name? His middle name was Jan. Question number three. What was the nearest tube station to Barbara's home and Felix's home? Answer. Bayswater. 
Bayswater is literally just just by uh, between Hyde Park and between Hyde Park and Paddington and Notting Hill. Uh, so we've, and we'll be back in that area again soon. Uh, question four: What was Barbara wearing that day? She was wearing a blue and white cotton dress, a black hat, and black shoes. Question five: What floor did Felix jump from? You can have two answers for that. Either is as good: seventh floor or top floor. Um, uh, question six: What three countries did Felix escape from? Uh, I've really written this question badly. What three countries did Felix escape? Uh, did he go through uh, after he had escaped Poland? Does that make sense? I, I think I read it better before. Anyway, after he'd escaped Poland, first he went to Romania, then he went to France, then he went to England. Uh, question seven: Where did Felix and Barbara first meet? Uh, the answer is the Lion's Corner has tea room in Marble Arch. Mm, that will come up again shortly. Uh, question number eight. Rookie pilots during World War II were said to have had a lifespan of how long? The answer is 16 minutes. Quite a few uh, rookie pilots during World War II were known as the 16 minuters Because uh, obviously there was a lot of turnover of pilots. There was a lot of... Uh, uh, aircraft being crashed or shot down and because they really didn't have enough time to train pilots properly you know to be a good pilot you need like a couple of good hundred hours of pilot training but they just didn't have that they hadn't got the time to train them so literally it was like this is what you do this is what how, how you fly it go up and they literally would go up and either crash it or be shot down because they didn't know how they didn't know how to dogfight it's you know it's a it's it's like driving a car do you know you see someone get see someone getting a car and driving around like in their their first year of driving around they're like hunched forwards and staring and like like every step is tentative so uh yeah unfortunately most new pilots did not last very long and also also you know it some things like the the, the spitfires were like really well built but you know uh especially with if you look at the Messerschmitts as well like in the early days of the uh of world war Two, especially with the german um aircraft they were really really well built at the start they were actually slightly over engineered but the further they got through the war and with britain as well because materials were of short supply they couldn't use the best materials so actually you started getting really shonky pieces of work so things flying in the air that really shouldn't have flown so uh, uh question number nine barbara's great grandfather was what what did he do as a job it was snuck in there right at the start uh well he his name was uh sir roland baron uh on his uh on her mother's side uh, he was a pioneer in the manufacture of ready-to-wear clothing so this was actually um a, a company called John Barron and Son that was set up in around the 1850s, 1860s. Uh, it was um, a kind of a big uh, factory, and they started doing uh, instead of like in the old days where it was all kind of like everything was um, tailored or made by um, you know for each person. It was kind of they worked out there was a way of making a process where you could just mass produce clothes, and it was so revolutionary, especially uh, post World War Two, that around the time that Barbara was born, the factory was actually visited by King George V. That's how important it was. Who came to inspect it and say, "Oh, well done." It was it was really big and huge and very important. Whew. Question number ten. Now I didn't mention this in the episode. 
but which other airmen who may or may not have been trained by Felix Sturber as a trainee airman were stationed at the Regent's Park barracks and often ate at the Lions Corner House tea room in Marble Arch? Hmm. Did you guess that one? I've put it as question 10, but I think it, I think it should be question 1 because it's quite easy. That, of course, was the Blackout Ripper. Now, obviously, we can't we can't check those details because we can't because it's military records. We can't check who was trained as a pilot there by who. Uh, so, but Felix was training pilots at Regent's Park. Uh, the Blackout Ripper Gordon Cummings was a, a trainee airman at Regent's Park uh, the, around the time that Felix was there. And we know that he definitely ate at the Lions Corner House tea room in Marble Arch because that is where he met his first victim. Um, Evelyn Hamilton, the pharmacist. So um, whether they knew each other is un, uh, it's probably unlikely, but they may have passed cross paths at some point. So that's that could be quite interesting. So there we go. Whew, right, that was that. Cool, that was a long record. I'm tired now. I need to have a sleep, but I'm not going to have a sleep because I'm going to record this and then I'm going to start writing the new episode and then I need to cancel all the murder miles. Or the murder mile walks, not the not the podcast. So uh, that's that. That's the end of this episode. I've got a tea. I've got a cake. I'm going to go and do some work. I'm going to power through. I'm knackered. That 30, 35 mile cycle ride yesterday really killed me. Uh, anyway, right onwards and upwards. That was that. Hope you enjoyed that episode. I thought it was quite an interesting one. Uh, next week, uh, uh, another single part episode, and then some more and some more. They're all different across this series. So, uh, uh, and then there's some interesting things to go in the middle <coughs> middle of the series as well. Some new kind of ideas. So, uh, but either way, hopefully, unless something horrible happens, uh, <coughs> um, all will be well, and you'll have an episode every single week. Anyway, that's it. That's me done. Lots of love. Speak to you all soon. Be good. Uh, Stay safe. Be healthy. Okay, bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com.
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.